Hello, this is Guardian Daily for Monday the 15th of February. I'm Andy Duckworth. On today's podcast, in the event of a hung parliament, the Lib Dems reveal how they'd push their agenda and do it without anyone in the cabinet. All that speculation about Vince Cable riding to the rescue of the nation, that's not going to happen. As the troop surge in Afghanistan continues, NATO admits two rockets aimed at militants missed, killing 12 innocent Afghans. This has very much become a war of perceptions in Afghanistan. More than 50 years after being convicted of an offence that's no longer a crime, why the effects still linger for one man. He still has to disclose that he's had this conviction any time he applies for work. Plus, Britain's most listened to radio broadcaster is back on air. God, it's been hell without you. (laughs) I promise you anything to keep you listening. First today, in the event of a hung parliament, Nick Clegg appears to be throwing a lifeline to both Labour and the Conservatives. It's believed the Lib Dem leader will allow either party to pass a Queen's speech, and this is the key point, without demanding cabinet posts in return. Preparations for a hung parliament, in which no party secures an overall majority, have intensified in recent weeks as opinion polls show a narrowing of the Tory lead. Nick Watt is our chief political correspondent. What the Liberal Democrats are saying is that if there is a hung parliament, that means that no party has an overall majority. We, the Liberal Democrats, are not interested in bums on seats. They're not interested in cabinet posts. So all that speculation about Vince Cable riding to the rescue of the nation and becoming Chancellor of the Exchequer, that's not going to happen. We don't want cabinet posts, they're saying. What they are saying, though, is we do want our agenda to be addressed. And uh, what Nick Clegg is saying is that we, the Liberal Democrats, would have four key elements of our election campaign. We will fight on those. And if we hold the balance of power, we will push for those ideas to be implemented. Is this surprising, kind of relinquishing some of their power to not have someone in the cabinet? Well, it's interesting because there is an assumption that if they did hold the balance of power, it may well be that they would have to be in government because the last time uh, there was a hung parliament was obviously in February 1974. And Ted Heath, who was the sitting Conservative Prime Minister, entered into negotiations with the Liberals, led them by Jeremy Thorpe, who didn't have as many MPs, but they did hold the balance of power. And Ted, he said, well, I don't really want the Liberals in my cabinet, but they have to be in my cabinet because unless I bind them in, it isn't going to work. And the Liberals then said not interested in cabinet seats and it didn't work. But really, this does show that uh, the Liberal Democrats have learnt the lessons of recent years. And the lessons of recent years is if you go into an election campaign talking about coalitions, the electorate will say, no, thanks very much. We're not interested in people who are talking about jobs. We're interested in people who have ideas. So what Nick Clegg is going to do is he's going to go into the election saying I want these four ideas and the four ideas in this order of importance are focusing education spending on the disadvantage, reforming uh, the tax system to take four million lower paid people out of tax, rebalancing uh, the economy, big focus on cutting the fiscal deficit and number four political reform and the way they're going to play that is that go into the election campaign these are ideas, these are what are we putting, what we are putting to the British people and when us grubby little journalists say to them Ah, what about a hung parliament? What about you getting a job in cabinet? Nick Clegg will say, these are my ideas for the election and they're also what will be my shopping list if I'm in negotiations with a minority administration. Now, Nick, we know that uh, preparations are going on behind the scenes in the event of a hung parliament, but 
As well, going back to 1974 again, there's an intriguing memo that you found. That's right. So Gus O'Donnell is circulating privately a memo that was written in March 1974 by Robert Armstrong, who was then Principal Private Secretary to the Prime Minister. He went on to become Cabinet Secretary under Margaret Thatcher. And this memo really sort of sets out the guidelines for what would happen if there is a hung parliament. Normally, you get a clear winner. If it's a loser, the losing Prime Minister goes to the Queen and resigns, and then the winning Prime Minister goes and kiss hands with the Queen and is the Prime Minister. If it's a hung Parliament, a bit more tricky. And uh, this memo uh, from Robert Armstrong says that the Prime Minister can stay as Prime Minister until he chooses to resign. And obviously there was the example of Ted Heath in 1974, who had slightly fewer seats than Labour, but hung on for the weekend to try and form a coalition with uh, the Liberals. Didn't work. And then he resigned. But there's also an intriguing intriguing line in this memo which uh, they're very interested in in Downing Street today which they're calling the Miliband option that the Queen doesn't necessarily have to call on the leaders of the two main parties Gordon Brown and David Cameron to form a government and what this opens up the possibility is if let's say Labour are the largest party but don't have a majority and uh, the Liberal Democrats say well you know we could do business with the Labour but not under Gordon Brown then the Queen could call David Miliband. Nick Watts in Westminster. And for more analysis, go to guardian.co.uk slash politics. Twelve Afghans have died after two rockets fired at insurgents missed and struck a house. It happened during the second day of NATO's effort to break the militants' grip on Afghanistan's dangerous south. General Stanley McChrystal, the top commander in the country, has apologised to Afghan President Hamid Karzai for the accident and has suspended the use of the rocket system until the incident can be reviewed. More than a 1,000 British troops are taking part in Operation Mosh Tarak. Here's Defence Secretary Bob Ainsworth. The hard bit in many ways starts now, though, uh, because having taken uh, control of the area, we now need to uh, provide security for the people who live there uh, and along with our uh, Afghan and coalition uh, colleagues, look after them, uh, win them over, uh, provide them with opportunities to make their way in the world so that uh, you know, the Taliban can't return and intimidate them as they have done in the past. The Guardian's Declan Walsh is monitoring developments from neighbouring Pakistan. Declan, the MOD says this surge is all going to plan so far. That's definitely the, the message that we're getting both from the capitals and also from the soldiers on the ground. It seems that uh, certainly part of the Taliban force that was holed up in Marja and Nadali seems to have left. Um, but of course it's not all that surprising because uh, the NATO forces have been using a new strategy in this operation uh, by telegraphing their intentions several weeks in advance. So, um, you know, NATO has been telling the residents of these areas to buckle down and they've been warning the Taliban that they would be coming. Um, so it has gone reasonably well. But having said that, there has been uh, quite a number of reports of sporadic gunfights um, across Marja. So by alerting the residents of the town and, and therefore the Taliban, has that uh, resulted in more booby traps and more explosives being rigged up? Well, certainly the people on the ground are saying that they've 
encountered even more of these explosions or more of these bombs than they've expected. On the other hand, they are proceeding very slowly, very carefully, with these painstaking door-to-door -door searches uh, to try and detect bombs. There's been an awful lot of controlled explosions. Um, and for NATO, really, the purpose of this is to try and avoid civilian casualties. Um, you know, this has very much become a war of perceptions in Afghanistan. Uh, the Americans have been pilloried for uh, the large number of civilian casualties as a result of air bombardment, which is a tactic that was uh, used more frequently in the past. Um, so now they've decided to go door by door, uh, warning people in advance, trying to really minimize the amount of conflict with the Taliban in some senses in order to win the trust of the local people to show them that the foreign forces can come in, uh, control ground, um, and then of course the next step uh, will be keeping the Taliban out and uh, bringing in the Afghan government services. And finally, Declan, how will success of this operation be judged and how long is it going to take? One uh, top Marine commander says it's going to take two weeks to reclaim uh, Marja. Yes, that's right. Well, they're actually saying that it, there's going to be at least five to seven days of these door-to-door -door searches and possibly as much as 30 days to, to entirely rid the area of Taliban. Are still very, it's still early days. That's still very much um, an estimate at this point. But really, I think the success of this operation will be judged by not by the military offensive or by the exit of the Taliban, but rather by the ability of the Afghan government and security services to come in and to hold the ground, prevent the Taliban from returning and to start to provide the uh, basic services uh, of you know, health, education and governance um, that people need in these remote areas to show them that, you know, that, that, that the Afghan government's not going to go away and that the Taliban will not be allowed to come back. Declan Walsh in Pakistan. And back in the UK, The Guardian's Steve Morris has been to Salisbury Plain where members of the 4th Mechanised Brigade are training ahead of their deployment to Afghanistan in April he met some of those helping provide spiritual support for the soldiers. I'm an army chaplain, Reverend Anthony Roach, and I'm chaplain to the Royal Dragoon Guards based in Catterick. It is a hugely difficult time with demands being placed upon us, which we are obviously going through the training to meet, and, and we, we have not just the military demands, but the personal demands, the sacrifices that people make in, in, in leaving their homes going to a different part of the world, spending the months there uh, with, with the deprivation that, that there is and, and then coming back and slotting again back into normal life. It's a big ask for anybody. Part of my job is, is to support people in that and, and to do my very, very best to make sure that everyone gets through it with the, with the best order. I'm Imam Asim Hafiz. I'm the Muslim chaplain to the armed forces. Um, Muslim soldiers are sailors and airmen are being deployed to Afghanistan and um, if a need arises where I'm asked to go and support these troops in theatre, then I will, I will go. Can you help non-Muslim troops as well with, with cultural questions yeah. and such like? Uh, you know, my role has three strands. My first primary role is to provide spiritual, religious and pastoral support to Muslims serving in the armed forces and their families. Uh, but my other two strands, one is to prov uh, provide an educational role. So um, uh, almost on a, on a weekly basis, I'm visiting different units, stations, to provide a presentation on Islamic culture, to give the, the people being deployed an insight into what Islamic culture is about. So when they go out there, 
at least they have some understanding of the culture that they're going into. Still ahead on today's podcast, he wasn't away for long and now Wogan's back on Radio 2. But is he any good with his new format and the new weekend time slot? Terry's come back to have a good crack, though his hair's looking longer and lanker. <laughs> but alas and alack, Boggy too has come back. And he's still just an old, beloved newsreader and singer <laughs> of some repute. It started already. Let's say we're only about 14 minutes in. But first, why do we remember the past but have no memory of the future? Just one of the mind-bending questions posed in a new book, From Eternity to Here, The Quest for the Ultimate Theory of Time. It's been written by Sean Carroll, a theoretical physicist at the California Institute of Technology. If you knew everything about the universe right now, and you knew all the laws of physics, you could predict the future with 100% accuracy. And you could also retrodict. You could predict what the past was like with 100% accuracy. Now, this is, of course, completely hopeless in practice. We have no idea what the state of the universe is at a microscopic level, and we don't know the laws of physics. But we believe that, in principle, this is the case. So, And if that's true, then the future is just as real, just as determined as the present is or the past was. It's just that we don't know what it is. So as we move into the future, we're learning more and more about the universe. But if we knew everything about the universe, we would know everything about the future. And there's more of that interview in The Guardian's latest Science Weekly podcast. You can find it at guardian.co.uk slash scienceweekly. For more than half a century, John Crawford's crime has cast a shadow over his life. His conviction in 1959 was for consensual sex with another man, which is no longer an offence. Yet, that conviction still remains on the National Police database. Paul Lewis explains why it's still having an effect on him in 2010. It all really stems from a decision back in October at the, the Court of Appeal. It was called the Five Constables Decision. It related to police data, and as a result of this court decision, there was a a memo sent out to all police forces telling them that they shouldn't step down or remove or delete people's convictions from the national police computer, the the police database, regardless of the reason. So there were people who felt their convictions should have been deleted from the database and weren't. And, and, And this man, John Crawford, was one of them because he had a conviction for buggery from 1959, and it was still on the system. So how has how has this conviction affected him? Well, John works as a as a voluntary worker. He feeds stroke patients in a hospital. What it essentially means is every time he applies for work, and it's mainly voluntary work, he's seventy now. He has to disclose that he's got a conviction, a criminal a criminal record. And of course, it's it's a you know particular type of conviction. It's a sexual offence, which is you know not something that he would want to disclose, and it's not something really that he should have to according to him as lawyers, because, of course, it's no longer a crime. Now, he did manage to get the conviction deleted from the national database, but then he then found out that under something called the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act, he still has to disclose that he's had this conviction any time he applies for work. Now, his legal campaign is essentially to get that rule overturned 
so that he can apply for a job and not have to disclose that in 1959 he did some, something that was then considered illegal but now, quite rightly, is no longer. And he's since had a kind of a think back and, and thought of how this has perhaps affected him without him knowing in the past. That's right. I mean, John didn't actually realise that... It, I mean, he assumed that the conviction would have just kind of disappeared over time. Um, and I don't think he realised that it, would, it, would, it had followed him like a shadow for the whole of his life. So, I mean, it was something he kept to himself, the fact that he, you know, he'd been convicted. Um, and it was quite a traumatic experience for him. So looking back, he now thinks of lots of jobs that he could have got. And he nearly did get. You know, he went to the interview stage. They, looked, they seemed very keen on him. He was a butler for much of his career. At the stage of the security check you know, which lots of high-profile figures and some royal family members required, and that's the kind of work he was doing. At the stage of the security check, suddenly the job disappeared from his grasp. And, um, you know, on reflection, he can't know for sure, but on reflection, he thinks it's probably because this conviction has followed him all of his life. Nearly two months after leaving Europe's number one radio breakfast show, Sir Terry Wogan is back on the airwaves. The 71-year-old's new show, Weekend Wogan, began yesterday on BBC Radio 2. The Guardian's radio critic, Elizabeth Mahoney, was listening. I think it's a curious sort of hybrid of a show at the moment. Bits of it feel like the old breakfast show, inevitably. You know, with a record 8.1 million listeners, he's not going to forget about that that programme uh, quickly. But the new format, the sort of um, live music, live audience, the two don't really work together at the moment, I don't think. I think it needs to sort of embrace the new format more. What people loved about his old programme was the kind of self-deprecating, witty chat and a kind of intimacy. And when you put that into a live kind of boomy auditorium with a live audience, it kind of sits rather awkwardly, I felt. I do think the programme's going to sort of settle down, and it's absolutely right for the sort of Sunday morning, sort of late morning slot. And it's the live music that I think will save it and kind of make it gel. Um, there was lots and lots of time for music. There was Nora Jones and Jamie Cullen. Now, whatever you think of those, even if they're not your cup of tea, they both did a, a number of songs. They duetted. There was a lot of kind of warmth in the room. You could hear that. And I think that's what's really holding the show together. But I think for fans of the old breakfast show, it kind of feels like there's not much chat, there's not much banter, there's, there's not much of what we all used to love about the old show. So at the moment, I think it's a curious hybrid, but it will inevitably develop over the next few weeks. So he's been off air for a few weeks now, and I think he told listeners, uh, it's been hell without you. Yeah, I, I have to say, good old Wogan, he absolutely loves it. I mean, he said that was the opening line, God, it's been hell without you. And his final line was, I wish it was here already about next Sunday. You know, he absolutely revels and relishes it you know he really does and you know it's interesting his last show on the radio he sounded so sad to be going and in this he sounds so happy to be back on it's only been a couple of months but he really does sound hungry to be back on the radio which I mean you can understand but I thought they were very telling opening and closing lines and I ought to ask you about how Chris Evans his replacement on the breakfast show is getting on what have you made of him so far I think it's really settling down now I listened to it last week a few times and I think it's really to me, it still feels overloaded. You know, there's still too many bits and pieces going on. And I just wish that we could kind of cut a few of the features. I think there's still room to kind of let the audience just settle in and breathe a bit when they're listening. Mornings are already very frenetic, and I think for most people. And I think that that kind of listening along to something that's also still very, very busy, 
for me, it just needs to calm down a bit still. Although I think it's, you know, the tone of it is much, much calmer now. It's just the features are still, I think there's too many of them still. On Terry Wogan, it turns out he's been asked or there's been some offers about whether he could replace Jonathan Ross on a, a chat show format on the TV. Do you think that would work all these years on from when he did it last on the BBC? I wouldn't think so. I mean, I think that what Wogan's got now is the chance to really enjoy his status as a national treasure. You know, the way he went out on that breakfast show with a huge audience and, you know, really, really warm, affectionate coverage of that. I think to go back and try something different, you know, if that fell flat, that would be absolutely awful. And I I would say stick to radio. He's absolutely brilliant at it, even in this slightly awkward format this morning. Two or three weeks time, it'll be sorted and it will be a lovely warm show to peel roast potatoes to. Elizabeth Mahoney. That's it for today's Guardian Daily. Please leave your comments on the blog. You'll find that at guardian.co.uk slash guardiandaily. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe for free, of course. You can follow us as well on Twitter. Search for Guardian Daily. Today's podcast was produced by Ian Chambers. I'm Andy Duckworth. Thanks for listening. Listener.